Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I'm going to read those verses now. Actually, I think we're only going through 14. I, yeah. All right. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Father God, lift up this time in your word this morning. We ask that you would just guide and direct us through this passage. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here with us, in us, upon us, and lead us into all truth as you told the disciples, Lord. We thank you for the paraclete, the comforter, the Holy Ghost, the one who comes alongside that you have sent to teach us and lead us into all truth. Bless this study now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So heaven opened, or one translation says, standing open. And so this indicates either someone's going in or somebody's coming out. And in this case, it's Jesus, as we see here, coming out. And right behind him are the saints of God. Uh, Acts 7.56, when you remember the first martyr of the New Testament church, Stephen. What an amazing guy. And again, you think about it, I believe the indicators are that Stephen was a relatively young man when this took place. And so, being a committed, dedicated follower of Christ does not always guarantee a long life. God has a different way of seeing things. God decided that Stephen would be promoted earlier. But as they were stoning Stephen to death, because he had recounted for the Pharisees and those people there in front of him, the entire history of Israel in an amazing brief synopsis there, and their rebellion and disobedience against God, that didn't go over too well. And preaching the gospel to them, they decide to stone him to death. But as they're doing that, Stephen said, Acts seven fifty six. He's looking up to heaven. He's not downcast, even as he's being stoned to death. I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now normally, according to the scriptures, having ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, praying for us which is awesome in and of itself. But here Jesus is standing, why? To welcome Stephen, the first New Testament martyr, into heaven. And Stephen sees him standing up there waiting for him. What an incredible thing. Now, so John, here in Revelation, sees heaven opened. There's a white horse. He that sat on him was called faithful and true. This is obviously Jesus Christ. And Jesus is getting ready to ride. The mount 
you've, you've heard me talk about this before, especially around Resurrection Day, March, April. The mount of a king in times of peace was a mule or a donkey. That's why Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey because he was presenting himself to the nation of Israel as the king or the prince of peace. He came to bring peace, not military peace, not political peace, geographical peace. He came to bring inner peace by lifting the heavy burden of sin off the hearts and minds of men and women. But now it's a different story. When he returns with the saints, the armies of heaven, he will be riding a horse and the mount of a king in the times of war is a horse. No more mule, no more donkey. This time it's a big white horse. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this was a prophecy of his first coming, the triumphal entry, which really J. Vernon McGee said was a tragic entry because the nation of Israel, he, the only time in the three and a half years of Christ's ministry here on the earth when he officially, openly, publicly presented himself to the people of Israel as the Messiah was on that day when he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. And on that day, Israel officially rejected him as their Messiah, as their king. And this prophecy in Zechariah is referring to that he comes humbly and lowly. Guess what? Next time, he's not coming humbly and lowly. He's coming back as the Lion of Judah, riding a white horse, leading the way, leading the charge. There before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful. Again, that rider is whom? Jesus. And I want to camp out for a minute on the faithfulness of God, the Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. First of all, we see in the Scriptures that He is faithful to us in times of testing and temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you or come upon you except such as is common to man. Sometimes we feel like nobody's ever been through what we've been through, right? My wife rebukes me regularly on that one. I think men in particular, we tend to be, well, we don't handle pain as well as women do. I guess it's because we don't give birth. But, you know, <laughs> we want to be babied. We want to be taken care of. When we get sick, we don't want a wife. We want a mommy. But most wives don't want to be mommies. <laughs> but in the course of 6,000 years of human history, more than likely, whatever you might be going through, somebody's been through it, right? So he tells us, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. So if you feel like, well... Nobody's ever been through what I've been through. I don't even think God can handle this one. Well, that's a ridiculous attitude, but honestly, sometimes people take that attitude. But here's the antidote. Here's the answer. But 
okay, maybe what you're going through is no different than what somebody else has been through, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And so if we give way to temptation, we can't blame God, because he promises not to allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. But again, we, we get into the matter of choices, you know. We can't use the old Flip Wilson excuse, the devil made me do it. We are free moral agents. God has created us with a free will. We can make choices. And if we choose to fight back, to overcome, then God will be there to help us. I like to say God empowers right choices. He enables us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So the way of escape is not running from the problem. It's to be able to bear it, to bear up under it with God's help. And I've, liked, I've used this analogy before, but if any of you have ever done any weightlifting or observed those who have, when someone is working with free weights, in other words, not attached to a machine, there's always kind of a fail-safe with a machine. If you drop it, it just drops back into place. But with free weights, if you drop it, it can crush your chest. So oftentimes, wisely, people will have a spotter there, right? Somebody's standing over you, and if they see that you're beginning to lose it, they grab it so you don't hurt yourself. Well, that's how it is with Jesus. He's like our spotter. You know, we're there making every effort with God's help to bear up under the trial but Jesus is there to be our spotter. God is faithful in times of testing and temptation. He's also faithful to sanctify us and keep us blameless. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. That means to set you apart for God's holy purposes. Sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Again, we make right choices, hopefully, but God empowers us those choices and enables us to persevere. And the good news, even when we fall short, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... It says in the same passage, he who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All. That's his faithfulness. Because even though we're born again by the Spirit of God, filled with the Spirit, we've been given the gift of eternal life. James says we all stumble in many ways. And it's only because of God's faithfulness that we can be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's the only way we can enter into eternal fellowship with Him. Eternal relationship. To live with Him forever in paradise. We have to be blameless. Nothing short of perfection can live in the presence of God. Jesus is was and is the perfect, sinless, blameless, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
and he graciously imparts to us that righteousness. It's because of his faithfulness whose writer is called faithful. He's also faithful to strengthen and to protect us. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 The Lord is faithful. It breaks my heart when I hear people speak negatively about God, how He lets them down. He doesn't come through for them. He doesn't answer their prayers. That would be a whole different study in and of itself. But the bottom line is, whenever there's a problem, it's not God. God is never the problem. If there's a problem, it's you, it's me. Okay? So don't disparage the God who is faithful. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 The Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Now, on the one hand, we talked about the devil, Satan, the enemy, is like a roaring lion, wandering to and fro about the earth, seeking whom he may devour. However, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Sometimes as believers, we give the devil way too much credit. God is faithful to guard you from the evil one. The devil's been all over me this week. Really? Well, where was God? By the way, you're probably not important enough for the devil to personally bother with. He's busy with some of these guys at the upper level. Perhaps in our own government. Perhaps in our own medical community. Now I can see some of those people being in cahoots. You and I were not important enough for the devil to mess with. But he has lots of helpers, right? He has lots of helpers. But, on the one hand, yes, we are engaged daily in spiritual warfare. There's a battle going on. Again, it, it's often been compared to um, World War II, various military encounters where basically the outcome has been decided. But I'm telling you, the mop-up and the clean-up was pretty heavy-duty. After it was already obvious that the Allied forces would defeat Nazi Germany, there was still a lot of death and destruction that went on before the deal was sealed. Right? And that's often the case in these military conflicts. And so we're involved daily in spiritual... We already know who wins. We do. God wins, and those who are on His side win. But we're still... Until we get to the next level, which is going to happen very soon, by the way, we're reading about it here when Christ returns with the armies of heaven, with the saints of God, to establish his kingdom here on the earth called the millennium. Then we'll be past all this, but right now we are still engaged in warfare, spiritual warfare on a daily basis. And so, yes, we have to be aware of the enemy and his strategies. And it's kind of like... There were, there were several of these people, but one of the better known ones was a lady named Tokyo Rose. How many of you ever heard of Tokyo Rose? And she broadcast all this propaganda in English, she was Japanese, to undermine the uh, morale of the American soldiers, right? Well, the devil and his minions are like Tokyo Rose. Even though they know they're losing, they also know with enough 
negativity with enough propaganda, which we're also getting in the natural world right now. The goal is to undermine, to discourage, to impart fear and get you to believe the lie that you're losing when you're really winning. Because we are winning in Jesus Christ. So he is faithful to strengthen and to protect us. The Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you. So why are we always whining about how the devil's beating us up when God is faithful to guard us from the evil one, which tells us something. If something does happen, it's because God allowed it and he will use it for good, for his purposes. Just like Job. The ladies, uh, morning ladies Bible study right now is studying the book of Job. And in the end, Job's blessings were greater than the former blessings. The latter blessings greater than the former. But at one point along the way, when Job is very heavily afflicted, he says, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. That should be the attitude of every believer. I talk to God about this every day. Lord, my life is in your hands. It always has been from day one, always will be. I'm only going to be here as long as you want me to be. It's all up to you. And if you decide to slay me, to take me home, then that means that's the best thing. And if you decide to leave me here, I might not even want to be here. That's, a lot of believers feel that way. But Lord, I just want to be with you, right? But God, if you want me here, I'll stay. If you want me to go, I'll go. But he is faithful. He's faithful even when we are faithless, 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. What does that mean? Because he lives in us. We're born again by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We now have God's DNA on some magical, mystical, spiritual level. Forget the word magical, but it is a mystical and it is spiritual. So he cannot deny himself because... To deny us as his children would be denying himself. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. But notice something. It doesn't say unfaithful. There's a difference between being faithless and unfaithful. Right? To be unfaithful, if you, if you equate that with a marriage relationship, that would be committing adultery, which God chastised Israel for and divorced Israel for committing spiritual adultery with false gods. He didn't say he's faithful if we're unfaithful. He said he's faithful when we're faithless. Do you sometimes feel faithless? It's hard to just even muster up any faith for a particular given situation. But he's still faithful. Sometimes we feel like giving up. God never gives up. He never gives up on you and me. He is faithful. Faithful to forgive our sins and purify us. 1 John 1, 9, I already quoted that. We'll read it again. If we confess our sins, so there is a bit of a caveat here. If you go through life denying your sin, ignoring it, pretending like it doesn't exist, that could be a problem. But if we confess our sins... You see, people are so afraid of being exposed, of anybody finding out who they really are. God already knows. 
The most fearful thing is not having your sins exposed, it's having them not exposed. It's like a disease. It's like a sickness. People avoid going to the doctor because they don't want to hear the truth. They ignore the symptoms, hoping it'll just go away. And then you hear these terrible stories about how they waited too long. If you would have just come in six months ago, we could have fixed it. It's too late now. It's the same way with sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Probably one of my favorite promises in the Bible because I do sin on a regular basis. Not because I want to, but because I'm still battling. It's the new man in Christ versus the old man, the spirit versus the flesh. And so without the promise of this verse, we're all up the creek. The promise, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Thank you, Jesus. And he is the faithful witness. And what does that mean? He testifies to our innocence. Revelation 1.5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He is our advocate. It's a legal term. Our defense attorney before the Father we know the devil is the accuser of the brethren. Again, we go back to Job and we see how the devil came before God. God said, hey, have you noticed my... Lord, please don't point me out to the devil. <laughs> I don't think I have to worry about that because I'm not probably nearly as holy or righteous as Job was. But God says to the devil, hey, have you noticed my servant Job down there? He's one heck of a guy. Thank you, Lord. I would have preferred to just stay under the radar right? And the devil says, well, sure, he's a great guy. Look how you've blessed him. Let's mess with him and see what happens. And so God says, okay, you can do anything and everything but take his life. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but the good news, the devil is the accuser of the brethren. He will be cast down halfway through the Tribulation to the earth. Wow. You think things are bad now? Wait till that guy comes to town. I mean, he's already around. He's already doing his stuff. He's already battling on the earthly plane, the heavenly plane against the holy angels of God in the heavenly realms. But wait till he's cast down and isolated strictly to this planet. Hello. But... Even as the devil attempts to accuse God's people, Jesus is there to defend us. He's our defense attorney. He's our advocate. He's the faithful witness. And whose testimony do you think God the Father is going to listen to, Jesus or the devil? Jesus. And Jesus says, that, that one is mine. That one is mine. They've been washed in the blood. They're clothed in my robes of righteousness. They have permission to enter in to the presence of God. We could go on and on and on about the faithfulness of our Savior. Notice what he says next here. Whose writer is called faithful and 
true. That is used 38 times in the gospel. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. People are, you know, from the dawning of time, people have been seeking and searching for the truth. Although I don't, in this day and age we're living in now, I'm not convinced that's still the case. It becomes more and more apparent that more and more people don't want to know the truth. They want to live in denial. They want to live in deception. And that's a scary and a sad thing. And I think that's why we are in the last days. And that's why we are into a great apostasy, a great falling away from the true faith, is because people have given up on seeking and searching for the truth, even though it's right in front of their face in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus' truth, he is the personification of truth. John 14, 6, another one of my favorites. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, people will try to distort this, twist it. This is what he said. He didn't say, I am a way to the truth. I am the way. He didn't say, I will lead you to the truth. He says, I am the truth. He didn't say, I will show you the life. I am the life. The way, the truth, and the life. He is the true source of life. John 15, 1, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. As the, Jesus is the vine, in order to derive life from the vine, you have to be attached to the vine. He's the true source of all light, 1 John 2, 8. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and true light is already shining. The sun, the moon, the stars, all those heavenly bodies are just replicas and reflections of the true light that comes from our Creator. Revelation 21, 23, the new Jerusalem where you and I will be living forever, by the way. We get to go to heaven. That's a, just a, kind of like a vacation. Hang out with God up there while the things are going to hell in a handbasket here on earth. Then we come back for a thousand years to Restore this planet to what God originally intended it to be, just to prove to everybody he's the only one who can do it. And then all of that will be wiped out, burned up. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven is where you and I will live forever, where they have streets of gold. Someone pointed out once, you know, to us, gold is such a precious commodity, but to God, it's pavement. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Revelation 21, 23, the city, the new Jerusalem, had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. The Bible says God dwells in unapproachable light, but guess what? In the new Jerusalem, He will be right there in our midst, and we will be able to approach His light because we will be living in our glorified, immortal, imperishable, eternal incorruptible bodies. Jesus, by the way, is the one true God and the one true source of eternal life, 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This is the guy that's getting ready here in Revelation 19 to get on his white horse and ride back into this world 
to conquer the evil armies of the Antichrist and to establish his kingdom on the earth. Verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Now this is similar to the picture of Jesus we saw in the first two chapters of Revelation. Revelation 1.14, Revelation 2.18, eyes like a flame of fire, many crowns upon his head. We've talked about this before, but this idea of fire, the fiery eyes to the lost, his fiery eyes represent judgment. To the saved, they represent power and purity. I can't wait to see those fiery eyes. But for those who have rejected him in this life, who will still one day have to bow before him, do you know that? Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you do it now, you get to live forever. If you wait till afterwards, no good. So why not do it now? You're going to have to do it anyway. As I've told you guys before, in eternity, there will be no non-believers. Do you realize that? The only problem is, for those who reject him in this life, you will be living eternally in torment, yet you too will be a believer. So better to just make that choice and that decision now. Get right with God, as they say. Receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Acknowledge, as we did in communion this morning, that his shed blood and his broken body paid the price for your sins. And if you confess them like we just read in 1 John 1, 9, you will be forgiven and you will be saved and you will live forever in paradise. It seems like a no-brainer to me. It really does. Sad that so many people have yet to acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Wasting all their time on these false belief systems, man-made religions that lead you down a rabbit hole, but not to eternal life. They're ooey-gooey, mystical. I think I probably shared before. Yeah, I, I grew up as a believer. I got saved as a preschooler, but as I moved towards my teen years and I got involved in playing in rock and roll bands and worshiping the Beatles, and I was looking for that mystical element. I had a friend whose mom was a real kind of a new age whack job, and that was in the 60s. She was a real pioneer, let me tell you, and I kept having these encounters, you know, well, she gave me a book on transcendental meditation. I read that. After you've read the Bible, this other stuff is just like, uh, yeah, garbage. There you go. <laughs> That's a polite way to put it. It just didn't do much for me, you know. I thought it was so cool, the long hair, and something's never changed. <laughs> the long hair and the beads and the Nehru collars, you know, and everybody's sitting there and, you know, all this stuff. But when I actually read it, didn't even come close to the Word of God. And then I had a buddy who was a Mormon, and he tried to bring me into the Mormon church. And again, I, this was junior high, and you know, because I'd already accepted Christ, I had a spiritual element in my life. I would pray every day. Didn't read my Bible every day, but I did pray. And the come on, I don't know what they do now with the Mormon church, but then it was, if there was one true church on the earth, wouldn't you want to be a part of it? That was their lead line. Right? I'm in like 7th, 8th grade. 
And I go, well, yeah, I would. I love God. If there's one true church on the earth, I'd like to be a part of it. So they started taking me through their little classes. But again, when you started reading the Book of Mormon, it really was third-rate kind of hack job. I mean, the Bible is the most amazing literary document that's ever existed on the planet. Do you realize that? And the Book of Mormon was like DC Comics or something. You know? And thank God, I already had the Holy Spirit. And things just started to not make sense and didn't sound right. And they were on the verge of baptizing me into the Mormon church. They came to my house one day to visit because they have to talk to your parents. I only had a mother at that point. And my buddy Ron, who was in my band with me, secular band, was there. And he grew up as a Lutheran. He, too, was a believer, although not really walking very well. But by the time my mom and Ron got through with those Mormon guys, I never heard from them again. <laughs> and then I met a guy, saxophone player. He was out at Arizona State University, and he was a big-time astrologer, right? And he did all these charts and everything, you know, and he, wanted to, he did my chart, and we were playing some music together for a while, and, you know, and I thought, wow, this is pretty cool astrology, but... Again, that didn't stick either. But you could see all the ways the enemy was trying to get me off the track. Has he ever done that to you? And then I found out about this guy named Paramahansa Yogananda. Self-realization. Big deal in India, but he also came to the West. In fact, they established a big church in California, and a lot of celebrities went there for a while. Self-realization fellowship, blending of Eastern and Western religion. And I read his book, and it talked about all these phenomenon that would take place with these dead gurus supposedly lying in perfect state, no deterioration of their dead bodies. And one guru was supposedly could give off the essence of flowers from his body. Another one could levitate, all these things. You know, and it all sounded so cool and mystical and, you know. See, the thing about Christianity is it's not the easiest path, it just happens to be the right path. There are more fun, fluffy ways to go, you know. So one Sunday, I'm about 16, I think, I, I'm looking at the religious page of the paper, and I see a picture of Paramahansa there, the long hair. There's this church in Phoenix. There's a, there's a branch of self-realization. I thought, cool, I'm going to go there for Easter. And to this day, I'm not sure how it happened, but instead I wound up at the Presbyterian Church. I never got to the self-realization church. But you see how this all works. People spin their wheels. They waste so much time and energy. Surely there's got to be something more fun than being a Christian, right? Something more exotic, something more exciting. Because take up your cross and follow me doesn't sound that exciting, does it? We made a joke years ago when we were down on Lead Avenue near the downtown area. I forget, we were studying at the time, but it had to do with suffering. And I, we suggested, hey, maybe we should put a banner out in front of the church, come suffer with us at Calvary Chapel. <laughs> that would draw a lot of people, wouldn't it? <laughs> that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Hello? 
See, there are sacrifices to be made in this life if you want to live forever with God. If you want to take the easy path, if you want to take the easy route and indulge your flesh and, you know, uh, go for the gusto. Remember the old beer commercial? You can do that, but in the end it won't be worth it. Peter talks about after we have suffered for a little while. A little while. 40, 50, 60, 70 years, whatever. After we've suffered a little while, eternity in paradise, to me, that's a good deal. What do you think? And God really compacted my life because all that wild, crazy stuff happened in the first 17 years of my life. And after that, I realized I needed to recommit, rededicate my life to the Lord and live for Him, and I did. So, thank God it didn't take me 30, 40, 50, 60 years. For some people it does, and that's okay. Better late than never. It's never too late. It's never too early, by the way. It's never too soon. I don't want to become a Christian right now. I want to have fun first. Really? What if you drop dead tomorrow? What if a car runs over you? Really? You want to, you want to play that Russian roulette? Well, maybe, you know, down the line, five years, ten years, when I'm too old to have any fun, then I'll become a Christian. <laughs> you might not ever get there, buddy. You better do it now. You don't know what the future holds. Eyes like flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. Here, the Greek word is diadomata, like diadem. Diadomata. It's a kingly crown. In contrast to the stephanos, or victor's crown, of the elders that we saw in Revelation 4.4, the elders had on the victor's crowns. That's you and I. We have victory, or we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But this is the kingly crown, the diadomata. He's the king of kings, the lord of lords. He rules over all creation, as we know. Heaven, earth, humans, the animals, the plants, the elements, the angels. He is over all. Revelation 17, 14. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. That's us. If you are a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning, you are called, you are chosen. Can't help but think of Toy Story. <laughs> the little green guys in the machine. And the kids, you know, you, you know those claw machines where you get a prize? And he gets a hold of one of these little creatures and starts pulling it up, and the other guys go, You are chosen. You are chosen. But I'll be happy for God to grab me with his claw and pull me up, I'll tell you that. Some things you just never forget, you know. <laughs> Revelation 19, 16. We haven't gotten there yet, but it's a preview. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. Actually, we did read it at the beginning because I went further than I intended to. King of kings and Lord of lords. A name written on him that no one knew except himself. So this is a different name. There's one that we can read, that we can see on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but there's a secret name. And he's also promised a new secret name to those who are overcomers, Revelation 2.17 and Revelation 3.12. Now we're given many awesome names for Jesus in this chapter, but perhaps there's still a surprise in store for us concerning the full revelation of the risen Christ that's yet to come. 
Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, this robe dipped in blood, some see this as the blood of the enemies he conquers at his coming. Remember, we've, we've read about the winepress of the wrath of God, likening the pressing of grapes into wine with the crushing of the evil people of this world and their blood flowing out up to the horse's bridles. Wow. I'm telling you, folks, there's some heavy stuff coming. You think it's bad now? This is romper room. So enjoy it while you can. Now others see the blood as his own blood or the blood of the martyrs, but it is a robe dipped in blood. And as we've been told in Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And you either accept the blood of Christ or you're going to bleed your own blood for your sins. You see that? It's one or the other, folks. One or the other. Revelation 7, 14. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Here's an amazing thing. The red blood of Jesus makes you white. Though your sins be as scarlet, though they be red as crimson, Isaiah chapter 1, I will make them as white as snow. Come now, let us reason together, you and I, thus saith the Lord. Can you believe that God is willing to reason with you and me? That he would condescend to that level? But here's what he says, let's reason together. But I'll do the heavy lifting if you just put your faith in me. Though your sins be as scarlet, though they be red as crimson, I will make them as white as snow, and it's the red blood of Christ that clothes you in those white robes of righteousness. Revelation 12, 11, they overcame him, how? By the blood of the Lamb. Sad how many people today, we've talked about this, I coined this expression, to the best of my knowledge. People who identify as Christians. Some people identify as a different ethnic group than they're really from. Some people identify as a different gender than they're really from. Some people identify as a different species, if you can believe that. It's really happening. Some people identify as Christians but they deny the blood of Christ. They instead say, well, we make it to heaven by our own good works. No, you don't. They'll never be good enough. In fact, the Bible says your good works stink in the nostrils of God. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. If you don't believe in the blood of Christ, that, that it paid the price for your sins, that it redeemed you, that he died on the cross for your sins, on the third day he rose from the dead, Forty days later, he ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. If you don't believe all that, then you're not a Christian. You can identify as one. Revelation 14, 19. The angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Receive the blood of Christ now and be saved or reject it and you may be one of the ones here for this blood coming out of the winepress of God's wrath. His name is called the Word of God, big W, Word. This name for Jesus is found only in the writings of John. Did you know that? 
John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.14. 1 John 1.1 1, 1, and here in Revelation 14.19, his name is called the Word of God. We see his, the expression of him in the scriptures, but just as he is literally the way, the truth, and the life, he is also the Word of God. I would say after this incredible description, notice at no point in this passage has his name been mentioned, Jesus, and yet it's abundantly obvious, there can be no doubt, this is Jesus. And what happens? Verse 14, the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. The armies of heaven, folks, this is us. And I got a question for you. How can we be part of the armies in heaven if we're still on the earth? Because the folks who do not believe in the pre-tribulational rapture the way we do, either they believe you go up. Now, some people are mid-tribulational. That's a whole other story. But majority of people under the umbrella of Christianity don't believe we will go up until after the tribulation. But how could we be part of the armies of heaven if we're still here on the earth? Think about it. Jude 1.14, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. So some people would say these armies of heaven are the angels, and certainly I think they will be part of the entourage. But Enoch specifically says, according to Jude, the Lord comes with ten thousands. That means an immeasurable number, multitudes, however many Believers have ever been saved and existed on this planet will be coming with him. To execute judgment on who? All. Because all who remain on the earth will not be part of the kingdom of God. They will not be part of the body of Christ. They will not be part of the bride of Christ. They who survive towards the end of the tribulation will be those who rejected him. And so we come to execute judgment on all. And we're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Yep, this is us, all right. The bride of Christ. Revelation 19.8. To her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We talked about that last week. By the way, if this idea of engaging in some kind of massive warfare against the armies of the earth makes you nervous, don't worry about it. Jesus is the one with the big sword. All you have to do is follow him. And it's always our place to follow his lead, is it not? And follow him on our white horses. There are no dark horses in God's kingdom. Let's stand. In a moment, Roy is going to lead us in a closing song along with the rest of the worship team. But I'm going to ask anyone who has a prayer request to raise your hand. Praise the Lord. Father, you see every hand. You know every person here. That's so cool. Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. And so, Lord, you know what's on each heart. You know what's on each mind. We lift up to you these prayer requests this morning, Father, for physical health, for those who are struggling with any kind of an illness, whether it's allergies or cancer. Lord, it's all the same to you. Not, none is more difficult than another. We pray for healing. We pray for mercy, for grace, an outpouring of your grace and your mercy relief from pain, relief from symptoms, and a relief from the very root problem, whatever it might be, Father. And if it's for someone in this room or someone outside this room, 
God, we ask you to reach out your healing hand, Father. We read about your miracles in the Bible, and we desire to see those miracles today in our midst. But Lord, even as we discussed earlier, as Job said, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. So Lord, help us that we might seek healing, not just for our own benefit, but for your glory. Lord, that we might be able to tell others of your might, of your power, of your love, of your grace. For your glory, we pray healing upon each one who is afflicted in any way. Lord, we lift up mental and emotional issues as well. Those can be just as troubling and perhaps even more so. Lord, for anxiety, fear, worry, doubt, depression, anger, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness. Lord, these, we know these things can be devastating in our lives. And here we talk about choices, Father. We choose to renounce those things, to release them to you. Please forgive us for any of those thoughts or feelings or emotions that we have that can result in a root of bitterness within our hearts. Lord, please take those things from us. Release us. Free us. You said you came to set the captives free, to heal the brokenhearted. Father, we pray for that this morning. Lord, you know each heart here. You know which ones could be broken. Lord, and we ask you to heal those broken hearts. Heal the mind, the will, the emotions. Lord, help bring us into line with you that we might have the mind of Christ. Lord, for financial issues, for material issues of uh, needs of income, Lord, and, and housing, uh, clothing, food, those essentials. God, we thank you for your provision, and we pray for those that are struggling that you'd provide for them. And Lord, whenever possible, as we are made aware that we might be part of that process of helping make sure that everyone has their needs met. Lord, you are our provider, Jehovah Jireh. Lord, we ask you to bless these folks this morning who have that need with jobs, with income, with all the provision that is needed. Lord, in spite of what's going on in this world and the pandemic and all the weirdness, we know that you are our provider. No matter who signs our paycheck, you are the provider. And we give you honor and praise and thanks for that. And finally, Lord, we pray for healing of uh, broken relationships. Lord, where damage has been done for one reason or another, either because of us or in spite of us, we pray for healing, for restoration, whenever possible, that friendships could be mended, marriages could be mended, uh, work relationships, wherever it might be. That there, You told us, Lord, as is possible on our part, we're to be at peace with all men. Help us to be peacemakers. Help us to see restoration if it's a family situation. Lord, we know that you did say you came to separate families because some would believe and some would not. But as much as possible, help us to be at peace with our friends and our families, with our husbands and our wives, with our co-workers, Lord, in every area of our lives that we might be your ambassadors and your representatives. Help us to be peacemakers, and we pray for healing in those relationships, Lord. We thank you and praise you for your word, the power. It's powerful, it's dynamic, it's inspiring, it's strengthening. And Lord, help us to take those things with us as we go from this place today. And we ask you to receive our final offering of praise here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.